I want to welcome you guys to New Community. Um, we are continuing our sermon series through the book of Daniel. And uh, we're calling it An Ordinary Rebel's Guide to Revolutionary Living. And essentially, you guys, what we've been doing as we study the book of Daniel, this Old Testament book that seems so far removed from our current day in life, what we're beginning to realize is that the book actually is very much relevant to our culture and to our society today. You see, the book of Daniel is about uh, how to live your life as a Christian. How do you live your life as God's people in a world, in an unbelieving world, in a, in a world where people believe that there are many gods, in a world in, in which people believe that there are many paths to truth? How do you live in a world, a secular world, that believes that there is no afterlife, there's no eternity, that this is all there is? How do you live your life as a Christian in an environment that seemingly is hostile to our faith? How do you do that? What we've been seeing is the book of Daniel has tons of things to say about that, and, and so we've sort of been on this journey. Uh, I've shared with you guys that one of the books that I picked up and I'm reading that's been sort of very powerfully challenging is this book called Unchristian. I, I, I want to encourage every one of you to pick one up, Unchristian, and it's an analysis of 16 to 32-year-olds in America, that's about 29 million of you guys, um, and, and, and just and interviewed people, Christians and not, about their perspective of the Christian faith. And the picture isn't so pretty. There are tons of things that the book sort of exposes about what not only Christians think about the Christian faith, but non-Christians think about the Christian faith. It's not a very attractive picture. Um, it's sort of tying in with what I want to talk about today. One of, the things, uh, one of the things that people overwhelmingly think of when they think of Christianity is that it's an intolerant, judgmental religion. And that hits me at many levels, and one of which is um, I tend to be intolerant and judgmental. Anybody else? So I personally struggle with that. So before I point fingers at everybody else to go, you ju-, I go, oh, that's me. There is a level of intolerance and judgmental attitudes in me. But where does that come from? Why is it that the church is perceived that way? Christians are perceived that way. Anybody fan of John Mayer? Okay, so when I say this, I know that I'm going to be very divisive because there are people who are going to go, we thought you were cool, but you are no longer. And then there are people who are going to go, John Mayer, yeah. In his album, Continuum, there's a song called Belief. And here's a, here's a line from that song. Belief is a beautiful armor but makes for the heaviest sword. Belief is a beautiful armor, but makes for the heaviest sword. Belief that Jesus Christ is the way, the truth, and the life, and you must come to him can be powerful truth, but it could also be an incredibly dangerous, heavy sword that could hurt and wound. And the perception of the unbelieving world is that when they see Christians who believe in exclusive truth, that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, and that there are many paths to God, they don't think of tolerance, radical love. They think intolerance. They think pain. They think hurt. They think sword. Why is that? Let me pick up on Daniel chapter 3 last week. Do you remember why Nebuchadnezzar set up that humongous statue and had people bow to it? Do you remember? 
Some of us grew up thinking that, well, the whole thing about that was that Nebuchadnezzar had this huge ego, which he did, and so he sets up this thing, and he wants exclusive worship, so he wanted people to bow down to it, otherwise the penalty would be they'd be thrown into a fiery furnace. And we had a little revision to that, hopefully biblical, and that is that the, thing, the decree was not, you will worship this uh, statue, this idol, and if you don't do it, then you will be thrown into the fire. What he's after, actually, is religious pluralism. Verses 14 and 15 clearly says, here's why you're being thrown into the fire. You will neither worship the Babylonian gods nor worship the statue that I set up. To which they go, yes, we will be thrown into the fire because we refuse to worship the Babylonian gods nor worship the statue set up. What was Nebuchadnezzar after? Here's what he's after, political glue. He's looking at his kingdom, made of people from different faith, different religion, different race, different ethnicity. He's looking at a multicultural, multi-ethnic empire. And he's saying, how am I going to have peace in my reign? How am I going to have peace in my, in my realm? And he knows that the only way to have peace is to say, hey, look, you can, be, you can worship your God. You can say that your God is the only God. But listen, I want you to also be open to other faiths. Worship other gods. And the way that you can prove that you're not a religious bigot who will be exclusively committed to your God is if you will come down and worship this statue. Why? Because he thinks... In a very similar way, a lot of our religious pluralists in our today, which is, if you think that you have exclusive truth, exclusive view of God, you have the God, it will make you tolerant. It'll make you repressive. It'll make you judgmental of other faith. It'll make you sort of this mean-spirited person that will want to shove down your faith to other people because you believe that my God is the only God. My God is the only way. And my God is the only truth. To which evidence is shown in our culture. Yep, that's what happens a lot of times when people go, I have the exclusive truth. I will hurt you with it. I will hurt you with it. What does the Bible say? What does the Bible say? See, to anybody, especially if you're not a Christian here, you came with a Christian friend, or maybe you are a Christian, and you think the same way. You think that if somebody, by virtue of having exclusive truth and believing that they have exclusive truth, that there is no many ways but one way to God, that they will make you intolerant, mean-spirited, judgmental person. I have great news for you, because you know what lies at the heart of Christianity? Heart of Christianity is not religion. Religion will make you mean-spirited, judgmental, intolerant. And I'm going to define what religion is. But if you're somebody who embraced the gospel of Jesus Christ deep into your soul, the gospel of Jesus Christ deep into your soul, it, it can't make you intolerant and judgmental. And we talked a little bit about that last week. Open your Bibles with me to Daniel chapter 3. Let's go and continue our journey into Daniel chapter 3. Daniel chapter 3. Uh, today we're going to spend some time studying this character Nebuchadnezzar. Nebe- what a name. What a name. I don't know why parents don't name their children Nebuchadnezzar anymore. That's a great name. That's a strong name. You know what I mean? It's not a Tom or a Peter or John. Nebuchadnezzar. I mean, that's, that's a name right there. Okay, anyway. Um, Daniel chapter 3. Daniel chapter 3, verse 10. We are going to uh, delve into character Nebuchadnezzar and find out some truths about about this whole aspect of tolerance and and this whole aspect of being a Christ follower in our world today. Verse 10, uh, we pick up the story, chapter 3. You have issued a decree, O king, 
that everyone who hears the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, pipes, and all kinds of music must fall down and worship the image of gold, and that whoever does not fall down and worship will be thrown into a blazing furnace. But there are some Jews whom you have set over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who pay no attention to you, O king. They neither serve your gods nor worship the image of gold you have set up. So furious with rage, Nebuchadnezzar summoned Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. So these men were brought before the king, and Nebuchadnezzar said to them, Is it true, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods nor worship the image of gold I have set up? Now, when you hear the sound of the horn, flutes, zither, lyre, harp, pipes, and all kinds of music, if you are ready to fall down and worship the image I've made, very good. But if you do not worship it, you will be thrown immediately into a blazing furnace. Then what God will be able to rescue you from my hand? Verse 16. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to defend ourselves before you in this matter. If we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to save us from it, and he will rescue us from your hand, O king. Verse 18. But even if he does not, we want you to know, O king, that we will not serve your gods nor worship the image of gold you have set up. Then Nebuchadnezzar furious, was furious with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and his attitude toward them changed. He ordered the furnace heated seven times hotter than usual. To which I'm going, I mean, how hot does it have to be to kill somebody, right? <laughs> so these men wearing their robes, trousers, turbans, and other clothes were bound and thrown into the blazing furnace. The king's command was so urgent and the furnace so hot that the flames of the fire killed the soldiers who took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And these men, three men, firmly tied, fell into the blazing furnace. Then King Nebuchadnezzar leaped to his feet in amazement and asked his advisors, Hey, weren't there three men that we tied up and threw into the fire? They replied, Certainly, O king. And he said, Look, I see four men walking around in the fire, unbound and unharmed, and the fourth looks like a son of the gods. Nebuchadnezzar then approached the opening of the blazing furnace and shouted, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the Most High God, come out, come here. So Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out of the fire. And the Sachab prefects, governors, loyal, royal advisors crowded around them. They saw that the fire had not harmed their bodies, nor was a hair of their head singed. Their robes were not scorched, and there was no smell of fire on them. The Nebuchadnezzar said, Praise be to the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and rescued his servants. They trusted in him and defied the king's command and were willing to give up their lives rather than serve or worship any god except their own god. Therefore, I decree that the people of any nation or language who say anything against the god of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be cut into pieces and their houses be churned into piles of rubble for no other god can say in this way. And the king promoted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the province of Babylon. Listen very carefully. Everybody look up here. People in our culture think that if you believe in exclusive truth, are you going to do what Nebuchadnezzar does in verse 29? That if you believe that Jesus Christ is the only way to truth in life, they're gonna, people believe that this is what you will do. But here's the, Nebuchadnezzar has not embraced the gospel. He is fully entrenched in religion. If you are fully entrenched in religion, you will respond like Nebuchadnezzar. And if you embrace the gospel, you respond like Christ. Are you following so far? Here's the bad news. You ready? Majority of us Christians are still entrenched in religion, not gospel. 
Majority of Christians are still entrenched in religion and we haven't embraced the gospel. That's why we Christians are responding out of religion, act with intolerance and judgmental attitudes. What do I mean? Nebuchadnezzar is a study, a case study of someone who's fully embraced religion. When you look at his, his, when you look at his story and his spiritual journey, it's very interesting. At the end of chapter 2, Nebuchadnezzar says, Oh, praise be to your God. Here is, here is exact words. Uh, uh, since your God is the God of gods and the Lord of kings and a revealer of mysteries for you were able to reveal this mystery we think that there is some sort of spiritual illumination happening in Nebuchadnezzar but chapter 3 quickly shows us that Nebuchadnezzar hasn't been converted has been changed he has embraced a lot of what religion is he has sort of fit this God Yahweh into his understanding of deity into his understanding of pagan religion but he has not embraced fully the gospel and the essence of Christianity what do I mean? By the way, uh, I've had some people ask me, Peter, you compare religion and gospel, religion and gospel a lot, and you make religion sound bad, sound negative, but isn't religion just a a neutral word? It's, It's a descriptor of faith systems. Why do you make it sound negative? Here's the reason why. I'm using it in the biblical sense. The word religion in the biblical sense is only used once positive in the book of James when God says religion that God our Father accepts is to care for the widows and the orphans. In every other occasion, religion and the word religious is used to describe man's effort, man's attempt, man's thing to earn favor with God, to reach God, which results in all kinds of stuff. You tracking so far? That's what I mean by religion. I'm using it in the biblical sense. Nebuchadnezzar has fully embraced religion. How do we see that? How do we see that? We see it in three locations. Number one, we see it in verse 15 of chapter 3 when he says, that what God will be able to rescue you from my hand? When Nebuchadnezzar, what God will be able to rescue you, he is speaking like any person in that time, in that culture, that perceived the primary role of a God as this. I exist to give you success and victory. Their understanding of world systems is this. Listen, if city A defeats city B, then by the virtue of that, city A's God is much more powerful than city B's God. Because that's what gods and deities did. Gods and deities gave you success, gave you prosperity, gave you victory. So in their pagan understanding, simple pagan understanding of religion and gods, their understanding is if God gives you victory, if God gives you prosperity, if God gives you success, he is your real God. He is your real God. Nebuchadnezzar is impressed with God at the end of chapter 2. Why? Because this Yahweh's uh, Daniel, Daniel, who interprets the dream for him, instead of the Babylonian wise men who couldn't interpret the dream for him, Nebuchadnezzar is making the connection, well, Daniel's God must be much more powerful than the Babylonian gods. And so therefore, I'm interested in this God. I'm very intrigued by this God. I'm very impressed with this God of the Israelites, the Jews. In his simple understanding of pagan religion, he says, this God could give me success. This God could give me victory. This God could give me what I want. If your approach to Christian life is, I obey in order to succeed. I obey in order to get what I need and what I want. I'm a good person in order to get blessed by God. If your engine and the anchor of your motivation to why you live the Christian life is I obey in order so that God can do X, Y, and Z, you are functioning from religion, not the gospel. You know, the funny thing is we like to sort of be critical of the health, wealth, and prosperity gospel. 
we laugh at that. Ha, 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 ha. Health and wealth. How primitive. That if you obey God, that, and if you do these things for God, that God will God bless you monetarily. God will give you X, Y, and Z. And we laugh at them. But before we laugh at them, can we just be honest? Isn't that not why sometimes we worship and serve our God? Isn't that the bottom motivation of why some of you are good persons or good people? Why you come to church? Because if I come to church, I go to Bible study, I keep my nose clean out of trouble, then God will bless me. God will do... This is entrenched in Christianity. This is entrenched in Christianity. Essence of religion is power. Essence of religion is I obey in order to get blessed. I obey in order to succeed. I obey in order to get what I need from God. Second motivation, Nebuchadnezzar, heart of religion, was fear. Fear. Nebuchadnezzar at the end of chapter 2, so funny. He goes, I'm not going to mess around with this God. He's pretty powerful. He's pretty good. I think I've learned my ways. I'm going to change. When we come to chapter 3, that's short-lived. Why? He's acting out of power addiction. He's acting out of pride. When he says, if I throw you, what God will rescue from my hands? In chapter 2, Nebuchadnezzar experiences the power of God, and so he's afraid. In chapter 3, it's short-lived, and he goes right back to religion. Here's another central engine of religion. You ready? I obey, and I do these things so that God doesn't punish me. Oh, my gosh. There are some of you sitting here today, the essence of your Christian life is fear. Essence of your motivation is fear. You have this, you have this, this sense just about you. You have this, this, this dark cloud around you. And, and the reason why you're a good Christian, the reason why you live the Christian life is this dark cloud that can descend any moment. This, this thing that can, can come any moment is, is the driving motivation. You are a good person. You are a good Christian. You obey because you're afraid. And the central motivation of your Christian life is fear. Can we just be honest here this morning? Why do you obey? Because I don't want God to punish me. Why do you obey? Why are you a good person? Why are you virtuous? Because I don't want God to, like, not answer my prayers. Another form of punishment. I don't want God to. Some of you have fully embraced religion, and I don't even need to go into it. You're sitting here this morning as a Christian, and you're just afraid. There's no security about you. You're just anxious all the time. And you feel like, I can never do good enough. Do you know how many Christians I talk to that come into my office and when we get to the bottom of it, the reason why they're Christians is because they're saying, if I don't do this, then I'm not going to get that. I'm not going to be blessed with that. God's going to bring some trials or suffering into my life. Heart of religion. Is this connecting with anybody? Is the essence of your motivation fear? If it is, you fully embrace religion. You are far from gospel, my friend. You're far from gospel. 1 John 4, 18 tells us there's no fear in love, but perfect love drives out fear because fear has to do with punishment. The one who fears is not made perfect in love. Can I just tell some of you guys something? You know what the problem is? The problem is we have confused consequences with sin with punishment from God. Let me say that once more. Some of us confuse consequences with sin. If there is sin in our life, if we choose to live our lives apart from God, if we choose to say, I want to be my God, self-centered, I will be my own master, there is fruits to that. There is consequences to sin. But don't confuse consequences to sin by blaming God for saying, why are you punishing me? Are you tracking? Again, yeah, 
the number of people that walk into my office and they're just blaming God saying, God is not fair. I'm going, what happened? So they tell me their life story and I go, maybe that's just a, I don't know, resolve fruit of decisions maybe, poor decisions that you made. To which they go, it doesn't matter still. Well, God is an unfair God, an unjust God. I'm going, there are consequences to sin, but don't confuse that with punishment. Listen, Jesus Christ died for all of your punishment on the cross. The Bible says there's no more punishment to be meted out for a child of God. That is the lie from Satan. That is a lie from the pit of hell that says, God is punishing you. If you are a child of God, there is no more punishment coming your way. The gospel of Jesus. None. Fear. But there's one other motivation at the heart of religion. One other motivation at the heart of religion. And Jonathan Edwards actually talked about this a lot. Heart of religion is pride. Heart of religion is power. Heart of religion is fear. But the third motivation is pride. In other words, I obey so that I can feel better about myself than other people. I do these things so that I can feel better about myself and other people. At the heart of religion is pride that says, as I compare myself to these people, I'm more moral. I keep my nose out of, uh, out of trouble. At the heart of religion, you guys, there's rules. Why? Because that's the only way that you have security and feel better about yourself. You look at the rules, the rules, and you go, I do those things. They do not do those things, so I am a better person. If the central motivation of why you are a Christian is pride, central motivation is fear, central motivation is power, Is it any wonder that we will be intolerant, judgmental, and mean-spirited? Do you see how important this is? In order for us to be Christ, because look, I said this last week, what is the truth, what is the central truth that all Christians say you must know, you ought to know? Now, on the surface, if you're not a Christian, that sounds intolerant. You must know, you ought to know, that sounds narrow and exclusive. But when you push in, what do you find? What is the one truth that all Christians say you must know, you ought to know, embrace? It is Jesus on the cross. Doing what? Dying, bleeding, hanging. For who? People who hate him. People who oppose him. People who can't stand him and rejected him. That's who's hanging on the cross. That is at the center and heart of Christianity. And so if you are a Christian who has embraced this to the bottom of your heart, a dying Savior, a bleeding Savior for his enemies, people who hate him, and you're still intolerant and judgmental, you haven't embraced Christ. You haven't embraced the essence of Christianity. Do you see that? Do you see that? I need you to see that. I need you to see that. That's why when I check myself and I get intolerant, judgmental, I don't go look at behaviors. I go, what is the essence of why I do what I do? Is it pride? Do I do these things to feel better about myself than other people? A lot of times, yes. Check. Is it fear? Do I do this because I don't want to get punished by God? Because I, yes, check. Is it power? Do I do this in order to be blessed by God, get what I need, success? Check. I haven't embraced gospel. I haven't embraced religion. Being a fundamentalist isn't going to necessarily lead to terror. Being a fundamentalist isn't going to need you to be narrow-minded. It all depends on what you're fundamental about. If you're fundamental about a dying, bleeding, hanging, dying for his enemies, people who hate him, kind of a savior, it will not only make you more tolerant, but what did Jesus do? He wasn't just tolerant. He broke through tolerance and he embraced what? Radical love. Sacrificial love. Radical sacrificial love. That's what he embraced. And the challenge for us Christians is not, 
Would you just be more tolerant? Can you just be nicer to each other? Can you just be nicer to the world? Because then you can be a testimony to this world. Jesus says, the only way you're going to be a testimony to this world that looks at Christians upon being intolerant, exclusive, judgmental is if you break through even tolerance and you embrace sacrificial, I'm going to lay down my life for you kind of love. And the world will listen to you. And the only way to get there, you guys, is not behavior. It's not fear-based motivation. The only way to get that is if you come daily to the cross, to the cross, to the cross, and you let the cross of Jesus Christ and the Savior who hung here dying for the world melt your heart. Melt your heart. That's why the gospel, definition of the gospel of Jesus Christ is this. Put it up there, you guys. Here's the gospel of Jesus Christ. The gospel says that when we believe and rely on Jesus' work and record for our relationship to God, two components. Although we are more wicked and more sinful than we ever dared believe, in Christ we are more accepted and more loved than we ever dared hope at the same time. And if you are a Christian, you have embraced the essence of Christianity, those two dynamics are at the same time working the engine in your life. You need to be able to say, first of all, In Christ, I am more wicked and more sinful than I dare believe. That's true of me. Why? Because unless you are willing to say that to yourself, I'm pretty bad, I'm jacked up, I'm messed up, I'm pretty sinful, I'm pretty wicked. Unless you could admit that to yourself, the power of the gospel will not electrify your heart. The power of the gospel will not transform your heart. If you're sitting there going, I'm a pretty good person. I grew up in church. I kept my nose clean out of trouble. I don't have those evil, bad, wicked thoughts. If you sit there, the power of the gospel will not transform your heart, and you will be judgmental and tolerant. Why? Because you're going to go, I'm better than him, better than her. At least I'm better than him. At least I'm better than her. When the cross levels the ground and says, you all equally just jacked up. (laughs) Any jacked up people here this morning? It's wonderful. <laughs> yes, if you're not a Christian, here you're going, I actually heard Christians that they're jacked up. Welcome to Christianity. We are more wicked and more sinful than we ever believe. And this will set you free from being judgmental. Why? Each time you want to go, at least I'm better. Th- oh, no, I'm not, actually. <laughs> Do you know what, though? We won't be able to go there. We won't be able to go there if you don't get the second part, which is what? Because that's what gives us the energy and strength to do that. That we are more accepted and more loved than we ever dared hope. We are more accepted and more loved. The only way that you'll be able to face your wickedness, your sinfulness, the only way that you're going to be able to face your depravity is if you have the confident assurance, I'm loved. I'm accepted. I'm uncondemnable. I'm undisapprovable. God loves me regardless of what I did last night. God loves me regardless of what I plan to do tonight. God loves me regardless of what I plan to do like two weekends from now. Do you know? Do you know that that's how God loves you? I know for some of us in there going, oh, you shouldn't say that because they're going to take advantage of your grace. I keep saying this. What is so, if grace isn't amazing, how would it transform our hearts? The reason why it's amazing grace is because you Christians sitting there going, I plan to do this tonight. And God goes, you're uncondemnable. I still love you. You're precious. Really? Really? And when you have that as a backdrop engine, you will be confident enough to say, I am more wicked and more sinful 
that I dared believe. I'm jacked up. But in Christ, I am loved. I am uncondemnable. I am undisapprovable. He is with me. He is for me. So your response isn't one of intolerance and judgment. Your response is one of God's grace upon grace upon grace. And so I love this line by John Newton, right? The writer, the hymn writer of Amazing Grace. I am not what I ought to be. I am more wicked and sinful than I dare believe. I am not what I hope to be. I am more wicked and sinful than I dare believe. But still, but in Christ, I am not what I once used to be. And by the grace of God, I am what I am. Welcome to the essence and heart of Christianity. If that's you and you believe that, could that possibly make you intolerant of other faiths? Could that possibly make you judgmental of somebody who's not as moral and good as you? Have you embraced Christianity? Have you embraced Christianity? Can I just say this because of time? I've got to move on. Listen, here's the difference between a Christian who is growing and a stagnant Christian. I was going to say this morning, how many stagnant Christians here? But I don't want you to depress me, so I'm not going to ask you. Okay? A growing Christian stand. Here's the difference. You ready? I love this analogy. I love this. I can't take credit for it. Heard it from another pastor. Here's an analogy between a growing Christian and a stagnant Christian. A stagnant Christian is not somebody who is involved in sin, although that, that's going to contribute. A stagnant Christian is somebody who is not involved in church. You know what a stagnant Christian is? A stagnant Christian is somebody... Who's, who, who, what their parents said 10 years ago, what their co-workers said, what their, what their boyfriend, former girlfriend said, what the world says. A stagnant Christian is somebody who's those voices, it appears in your soul like high-definition, high-definition TV. It is vivid. It's clear. It's striking. And the truth of the gospel is only coming through barely on cassette audio. A growing Christian and a stagnant Christian, the difference is this. A growing Christian is somebody whom God's truth of the gospel, I am more wicked and more simple than I dare believe, but I am more loved and accepted. That truth is coming at you in high-definition TV. Whoa, look at that. <laughs> and the truth of what our parents said, what the world says, you're this, you're we, you're seeing all that. When that, even though it's true, it's coming at you in cassette audio. But the thing that is radiating in your heart, that is visibly catching your imagination, is the gospel of Jesus Christ coming at you. Unless IMAX, 100 by 120 foot IMAX theater, high definition screen, screaming, blaring out at you. You are my child. I love you. A growing Christian is someone for whom that is a regular experience. Seeing that beautiful picture going, oh, that's so good. But there's a voice, but you're nobody, but you're sinful, but you're wicked, but you're a failure. Remember what mom said? Remember what dad said? You know, excuse me, I can't, I can't. Why, 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 why? High definition, IMAX theater. Is that, does it connect? Oh. So my question is, are you checking in daily? Are you checking in daily and hearing high-definition, vivid, clear, beautiful, multicolored shoes of God shining on your soul? Are you going back to your room going, and play this cassette play? What's it saying again? Yeah, yeah, I'm not worthy. Yep, yep, I'm wicked. I'm sinful. I have no hope. Yeah, I'm never going to change. I'm not. If you're a stagnant Christian, if you're a stagnant Christian, it's not because you're not trying hard enough. It's not because you're not involved, you're not religious. Some of the most stagnant Christians I know are some of the most religious Christians I know. You know why? 
because they think that's what they'll get themselves out of it, except it's a vicious cycle. You're using that to feel good about yourself. You're using that to base your morality, and that is religion, religion, religion. Religion, religion will dull your soul. How many people want to embrace the gospel here this morning? And then what we hear about? Remember, I didn't say, how many people want to embrace church or religion or even Christianity? Gospel, gospel, gospel coming at you. High definition. Vivid, clear. Are you hearing him? You know, what's interesting is that, is that directly uh, related or contrasted to Nebuchadnezzar is the, is the faith of the young men. And the faith of the young men, I see a component, another component of the gospel, another component of the gospel that's powerful. Look at the young men's response. I want you to look at, look at verse 17 and 18, because some of you guys may be caught it, some of you didn't. Look, look at what they say. If we're 17, after they're threatened, they say, we're thrown in, if we're thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to save us from it, and he will rescue us from your hand, O king. Everybody look up here, or, or look at the screen, better yet. Here's what they're saying. Here's what they're saying. They're saying, hey, you know what, Nebuchadnezzar? We know who God is. God is able to deliver us. He is all-powerful. And you know what else, Nebuchadnezzar? We are assured that God will deliver us. God God is able to deliver us, and God will deliver us. Well, if they just stop there, that would be the testimony of many of us who have been Christians. But they don't stop there. They say verse 18, which seems very contradictory. Look at what he says. But even if he does not, we want you to know, King, that we will not serve your God to worship the image of gold you have set up. Huh? God is able, and God will, many of us. God is able, God will. But just as confidently they say, but even if he does not. You know what it does? It forces you and I to change a very simple and dangerous view of faith and the will of God that we have. And break it down this way. They have absolute assurance of the character of God. God is able. He's all-powerful. To which we go, amen. And then they go, we have a certain level of assurance that God will deliver us. So God will deliver us. But the difference between them and us is this. They're just a little bit more concerned and passionate about God's agenda than their own. And their agenda, by the way, is pretty good. They don't want to fry. That's a pretty good agenda. Do you know what I'm saying? Like many of us, their agenda is we don't want to fry, God. So you can save us. You will save us because we don't want to fry. But at the end of the day, they're just as confident in saying, but even if you do not, we will worship you. If you cannot stay in your life with that area, relationship, job, future, whatever the issue is, if you cannot say in faith, God is able, of course he is, and God will. But even if he does not, you are more about your agenda than you are about God's agenda. Majority of us can't get to that third can, can we? God can, and God will. And that's that. No, there's more. There's no more. God can. I believe it. And God will. And we say, I'm a man of faith. Listen, when you say, God, I know that you will do this, and you can't not answer this prayer, you are more about your agenda than you are about God's. And they're literally saying, our agenda, pretty good. We don't want to fry. 
But whether we die or live, Nebuchadnezzar, we are ultimately more concerned about who God is and what his agenda is. So whether we die or whether we live, we will honor our God and serve him only. Can you say that? Can you say that? Do you mean it? Do you mean it? Can you honestly say from the bottom of your heart with that thing that you've wanted for so long, that thing that you've wanted for so long, and it's a good thing, it's a godly thing, it's not a bad thing. For some of you, it's marriage. For some of you, it's a relationship. For some of us, it may be a, be a parent. Good thing, godly thing. For some of us, it's a ministry opportunity. For some of us, it's a job, acceptance, whatever. And we're saying, God, God, this could be used to glorify you and you're honest. God, we could use this to serve you and you're honest. But if you cannot get yourself to that point of saying, God, you can and you will. But even if you don't, you're more about your agenda than you are about God's. And you know what? Christianity will not make sense to you and you will grow bitter and you will grow angry and your perspective will be how dare you God how dare you God how dare you God Hebrews 11 6 without faith it is impossible to please God because anyone who believes anyone who believes that he is or anyone who believes that he exists and comes to him will be richly rewarded. You know, if you do not embrace the truth that we're talking about, when you do that, you go, I have faith, I will believe, I will seek, and so God, you're going to deliver. Do you know what the reward is? Do you know what the reward is of that passage when God says, without faith is impossible, he's God, because anyone who comes to him must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. Do you know what the reward is to those who earnestly seek him? Do you know what the reward is? God's going, the reward is me. The reward is me. The only way the Christian life will work for you is if you come to him whether Christian life is working for you or not. If you come to God seeking to, seeking to have your needs met, you will neither find God nor have your needs met. You can't come to God because he's fulfilling, although he is. You have to come to God because he's true. He's God. He's God. How are we doing? How are you doing? How am I doing? Do you have plans for your life? Do you have agendas? Do you have goals? It's okay. God calls us to have those things, but here's the question we need to wrestle with. Are you trying to fit God into your agenda? Are you trying to fit God into your goals? Or are you allowing God to shape your agenda, God to shape your goals? Have you come to him and said, God, unless you come through here, I have a schedule, I have a timetable. Unless you come through for me, unless you do this for me. Or have you come to him and said, God, I have agendas, I have goals, but you know what? As a Christian, I have made you my ultimate agenda. God, it's about your agenda, not mine. It's about your will, not mine. It's about your time, not mine. It's about your money, not mine. It's about your goals, not mine. Can you say that? If you cannot as a Christian, I'm telling you right now, you will say to yourself, Christianity doesn't work. God, you're unfair and you're unjust. Or you'll say, I just got to try hard enough. I'm not doing enough. Can you say, God, you are able. God, you are willing. But even if you don't. 
And lastly, we come to this uh, interesting passage. I asked uh, our church last week that if they had friends who asked the whole question of unjust suffering in the world, they invite you to come. And you came and you sat all this time and you're going, I thought you were going to talk about unjust suffering in the world. What the heck? Why am I wasting my time here this morning? Well, I'm finally to that point, unjust suffering in the world. I know for a fact that many conversations I've had with very bright non-Christians, one of their biggest issues is unjust suffering in the world. Peter, unjust suffering in the world has defeated your God, your biblical God, who is all-powerful and all-loving. Because how can a God who's all-powerful and all-loving allow suffering in the world to go on? Doesn't make any sense. Either he's not who he says he is, he's not powerful enough. Listen to verse 25 and 24. Because Nebuchadnezzar sees two things that startle him. First of all, Nebuchadnezzar is shocked that they're walking around in the fire unbound and unharmed. And that's pretty shocking in and of itself. Would you agree? Would you agree? Yes. Okay. Seven times hotter than usual. I don't know what the usual was, but seven times hotter than usual. They're thrown in there, who knows, maybe an hour, maybe two, I don't know. But, but they're in there and they walk out literally not a hair on their hair of sins, right? But there's another thing, maybe more important thing, that astonishes and startles Nebuchadnezzar. And that is what? You notice that he notices what? A fourth figure in the fire with them. He throws three people and he sees a fourth figure walking around in there with them. And scholars and commentators debated for years and years and years, who is that fourth person? And thank God this is one of the things that a lot of commentaries and scholars agree. That the person that's walking around in the fire is none other than the pre-incarnate second person of Trinity, Jesus. Jesus. Nebuchadnezzar notices, he doesn't know Jesus. He sees this radiant figure. He calls it the son of God, a son of the gods, because even in the fire, it seems so, it seems so supernatural, so powerful that Nebuchadnezzar confesses and admits, there's got to be something to that. Now, notice one thing about this that is so critical and important. You ready? When the three men come out of the fiery furnace, this figure doesn't. When the three figure come out of the fiery furnace, this person stays in the fiery furnace. Listen carefully. Here is the answer to the philosophers in our world today who say, what about unjust suffering? What about unjust evil in our world? Listen, this doesn't give all the answers. First one they made, it doesn't give all the philosophical answers to that question, but you know what it does? It addresses the heart of the philosopher who says, why suffering? What do I mean? Why does Jesus, the pre-incarnate Son of God, stay in the fiery furnace? Why doesn't he come out? And more importantly, why doesn't God just deliver them by saying, I will reach down my hand and I will bring you up, which would have been a lot more like, whoa, for Nebuchadnezzar, right? Why does God choose to deliver, listen, this way? Why does God choose to deliver the young men by himself going into the fiery furnace, them coming out, him staying in the fiery furnace? Here's a powerful, beautiful truth of the gospel. In Matthew chapter 13, Jesus talks about another fiery furnace. In Matthew chapter 13, Jesus talks about another fiery furnace. And you know what it is? When you turn to Matthew 13, you see that Jesus is talking about the fiery furnace that is the wrath of God. Now, 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 as soon as I say that, non-Christians go, wrath of God, there it is. I'm checking out, thank you very much. Mean, old, judgmental wrath. You know what the wrath is? Listen, before you judge that, the wrath of God, the wrath of God is justice that man's inhumanity to man deserves. The wrath of God is justice that wickedness, evil deserves. Wrath of God is indifference. The wrath of God is all the evil, all the suffering, all the injustice inflicted by man upon man, man upon creation that the world history has ever known. 
Wrath of God is the justice of God being poured upon all the evil, all the suffering, all the weakness and sin that man has mustered up in the history of mankind. And what is Jesus doing? What is Jesus doing? Jonathan Edwards preached this beautiful sermon where he says, you know, in, that, in the Garden of Gethsemane, the night before he used to be crucified, the gospel writer said that Jesus is sweating. He's sweating drops of blood. And Jonathan Edwards says, the reason why Jesus is sweating drops of blood is he sees the door of the fiery furnace open. And he sees what he is about to walk into. He sees what he's about to endure for the sake of us and for the sake of mankind. As the door of the fire furnace open, Jesus is sweating drops of blood. Do you know that the Bible has audacity to say that we have a suffering Savior? Do you know the Bible has audacity to say that we have a God who suffered? And you know why that's important? I heard a pastor's wife say the most profound thing about suffering and love I've ever heard. Having just given birth to a child, she turned to her husband and said, now that we have this beautiful child, we'll never ever be happy again. To which the husband said, come again. To Mitch, he was like, what, what, what? This country. You know what she was saying? Of course you love that child, but she was saying, now that we have this precious, helpless little baby, every time the baby hurts, I'm going to hurt. Every time this baby cries, I'm going to ache. Every time this baby endures pain and suffering, I'm going to endure just as much as the parent, as the mom that loves his child, and I will never, ever be happy again. We know intuitively that if you love somebody, you suffer. You suffer. This morning, as we're dedicating Eleonora, why am I crying like a stupid idiot, like a little babe? Why am I sitting here crying? Why? Because even after five years later, my heart aches. If you don't suffer in this world, inherently you know you don't love somebody. The way that you know you love somebody is if you suffer. And the cross of Jesus Christ has the audacity to say, we have a God who suffered. And to anybody who says, you don't love us, you don't care about us, you don't know what I'm going through, the Bible says the cross, the cross, the cross. The cross, the cross, the cross. God's declaration loud and clear to anybody who says, you are not loving God. How can you let this evil of God says, I suffered for you and for the world. We have a Savior with scars in his hands who hung on the cross. And as we intuitively go, how do, you, how do I know that you love me, God? If you believe in some abstract God, a spirit of goodness, somebody who loves everybody, somebody who's just kind of a grandfatherly figure, I love everybody, you don't know that person loves you. Why? When you're going through suffering, you look at them and go, how would I even know that you care? But we have a God who came down all the way down and said, I suffered for you in the world. The only way that you have comfort, assurance, and strength when you're going through suffering, the only way that you know that this God walks with you in the fiery furnace of the trials of life is knowing and assured that this God suffered for you. It's knowing that this God suffered for me. Me. And when we go through the fiery furnaces of life and pain and suffering come, the assurance of God's amazing love comes upon us. 
Because we have a Savior who says, I suffered. To anybody who says, your God is detached, he doesn't care. 2,000 years ago, he shouted and declared loudly, I not only care, but I'm going to do something about this suffering. I'm going to do something about this injustice. I'm going to do something about this evil in the world. And even though we may not be there, so that God, why don't you end it now? One of the things we are absolutely confident is, one day God will end it. He will end it. He will end it. As Revelation says, there will be no more tears. There will be no more pain. How do we know? The cross, the cross, the cross. Are you somebody who says, I'm an atheist, I don't believe in God? Here's the thing that I have issues with that. Then why be mad at suffering? Why be mad at injustice in the world? It's just life, right? Why be outraged? If there's no God, there's no point of it all. Why be outraged by apartheid? Why be outraged by slavery? Why be outraged by oppression and injustice in the world? It's just the way life is. But the Bible says, There is a point to it all. He came and suffered for you and for me. And any time our souls want to cry out, do you care? Jesus says, look at the cross, look at the cross, look at the cross. Come on. When you go through hard time and suffering and you look at the cross, it will eliminate self-pity. You know what I do when I go through suffering? I go, I don't deserve, and then I remember that the best man who ever lived, the sinless son of God, suffered. I don't deserve, well, you didn't deserve it either. Whenever I say to myself, there's no point to it all, God. It's just pain. It's just suffering. There's no point to it all. I have to remember the cross, the cross, the cross. As a result of the cross, out of the most suffering, out of the most, 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 most obvious, most powerful example of suffering, out of that came life. Out of that came redemption. Out of that came renewal. Out of that came hope. Out of that came forgiveness. And then when you and I suffer, we go, this is pointless. There's nothing to it. We're reminded by the truth of the cross that through that suffering, somehow in our smaller, cooler furnaces will come life, will come redemption, will come hope, will come renewal, will come forgiveness. And any time we sit there and go, I'm suffering because I'm being punished by God, the cross, the cross, the cross says, I died for your punishment once is no more punishment coming your way. Let me just read this email and then we're done. And then we're done. This email was sent to me by a couple in our church that I love, I cherish with all of my heart. I'm emailing you about our recent experience of having a miscarriage. My wife and I wanted to have children, so we were so excited that we would be parents for the first time. So much thought and care went into the process. Our love was so strong for a child that was not yet born. After so much preparation and prayer, we were extremely disappointed when we miscarried. It was so devastating that we felt we had lost everything, but we can proudly say that we have also gained everything. My wife and I are even closer after this experience. My Christian co-workers and I have opened discussions about Christ and prayer and his healing power. 
We've shared intimate details about each other's lives. People have opened up to me in ways I've not experienced in seven years working there. My unsaved coworkers and I talk openly about Christ in ways I could only dream before. God has answered my prayer in providing opportunities to demonstrate the power of Christ in my life. The experience of being pregnant, even for a short time, gave us a glimpse of God's love for us. Life is a miracle, a gift from God, and should never be taken for granted. Even though this has been extremely sad, the miscarriage is a reminder to us of God's sovereignty and his power to bring life into the world. So Peter, please give your kids an extra hug for us tonight. Let them know how much Jesus loves them. Let's pray together. Before I pray, I wanted to say that right after this service, if there is anybody who is in need of prayer, the prayer team, our pastoral staff, and some of our leadership team members will be up here to pray with you and to pray for you. Regardless of what the fiery furnaces of life you may be going through, I want to encourage you, friend, child of God to come and pray with us God it is our desire to be shaped and radically molded by the powerful truth of your gospel In areas, Father, that we struggle, in areas in which we are weak, in areas in which we lack faith, grant us your faith to believe. Grant us your faith to embrace this radical truth that we have a suffering Savior. We have a Savior with nail marks in His hands. We have a Savior who Himself personally got involved to deal with suffering and evil and injustice once and for all. you're not a God who stays afar that you are near you are near church we all stand together as we worship If you're in need of prayer, come on up. If you're not a Christian today, in light of what I talked about, you want to engage in spiritual conversation, I love doing that. So come on up. We'd love to talk to you. Have a great week, church. May the Lord go before you, behind you, and beside you. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, have a great week. Have a great week.